I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero carbon future a reality. In this episode, my conversation with Billy Parrish, the co-founder of Mosaic. Mosaic is the top underwriter for home solar loans in America. It's creating the financial tools for homeowners to easily get solar on their roof. Billy didn't start in finance, though. He actually dropped out of Yale to pursue a career in activism. In this interview, I talked with Billy about his surprising path into solar lending, his difficulties raising money from VCs, and his philosophy building a successful team. I've known Billy for well over a decade. He is one of the most mission-driven, heart-forward leaders that I know, and I'm fortunate to call him a friend. This conversation was recorded live at Powerhouse's headquarters in Oakland, California in 2018. Our friend, venture investor Shale Khan, sets the scene. I had basically just discovered the term climate change when, in 2005, Billy led a three-day fast at the White House to call attention to the estimated 150,000 deaths that climate change causes each year. He got more than 120 universities to sign up for the Campus Climate Challenge. He founded the Energy Action Coalition, which became the largest youth-led clean energy advocacy network in the world. That's cool on its own. Billy was an extremely effective advocate for a cause that I think many of us in this room and many of the folks who are listening care about. Very few people have been such successful advocates for any cause. But among that small group, how many can also say that they've built a business that has raised, for example, $200 million from one of the largest private equity firms in the world? I would venture to say that Billy may be close to alone on that list. But that's what happened. Billy's company, Mosaic, formerly known as Solar Mosaic, started out as a crowdfunding business for solar. But today, as you will hear, it is by far the largest provider of loans for residential solar in the country. And as many of you have heard before, loans are rapidly overtaking the residential solar landscape. And Mosaic, more than any other, has been the rocket fuel for that transition. Mosaic, among many other firsts, was also the first to securitize hundreds of millions of dollars in solar loans, driving down the cost of capital for residential solar for homeowners across the country. And now Mosaic is financing batteries, it's looking at energy efficiency solutions, and more. And Billy, I think, is fascinating because he has made the transition from being a highly effective advocate and organizer to a highly effective business person, which so few people can say. And the latter is no easy task in this sector. There's a lot of competition in the residential solar financing space. There was even more competition probably when Billy started financing residential solar projects at Mosaic. There's a competition in the software landscape where he is also playing and winning. And you have to earn the trust of the financial sector. Uh, you have, in order to securitize hundreds of millions of dollars of loans, you have to convince purchasers of long-term securities that you have a product that is safe and trustworthy and is going to earn a return. And that is no small feat, especially when you're doing it for the first time. But Billy has done that. So in addition to being just a really awesome guy, as you are all soon to learn if you don't already know, um, he's achieved a transition in his career that I think is unique and fascinating and really impressive. So 
whether I consider myself to be a climate change crusader or just a savvy business person, I personally look forward to being humbled as I hear Billy tell us his story. So with no further ado, Emily and Billy Parrish. All right. So to start, let's go way back. Billy Parrish, early days. Where were you born? What were you like as a kid? Tell us about that. Uh, born on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Uh, both of my parents were lawyers. They're both English majors uh, in college and then lawyers, so very uh, verbal. Um, and uh, my dad actually did uh, securitization uh, law as well as helped finance coal and nuclear power plants as a lawyer. Uh, so I didn't really understand what he did or think that it impacted my uh, career trajectory. But it was funny to learn later that I'm doing solar securitizations and uh, following in his footsteps in some regards. Did that ever become controversial in your house, the fact that he was on the coal side? Uh my uncle also did uh, was the head of financial forecasting for Saudi Aramco, uh, uh, and at that point, um, people saw fossil fuels as um, solving poverty. Um, uh, the The sort of downsides of it were a lot less well known. So, um, I think by the time they were better known, my dad was out of the business and was happy to see me doing something productive with my life. Did you, as a kid, did you think you were going to do something similar to him? Or what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Probably the first non-athlete job idea I had uh, <laughs> was um, to be a reporter. Um, you know, I, I always had a strong sense of right and wrong. And uh, that, you know, the world, uh, uh, that there were a lot of things that needed fixing. And uh, didn't have a lot of role models of entrepreneurs fixing them. And uh, maybe, you know, because of who my parents were, had a, had role models of journalism being sort of what shined a light on um, injustice problems. Um, and I loved to write, so. Um, is there a story that your family always tells about you? <laughs> that I want to share on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I have any. That's okay. <laughs> um, tell us, what were you doing in the years leading up to Mosaic? I first got uh, passionate about this kind of work um, in my junior year of high school. I went to a, a school called the Mountain School in Vermont, uh, which was a kind of environmental boarding school, and um, read a book called Ishmael, uh, which was the first thing that kind of opened my eyes to the fact that we are in an ecological crisis and uh, the uh, repercussions of which could be very significant, uh, not just to humans, but to all life on Earth. And um, that was, you know, I, I, I got really focused on that um, at that point and thought of going to an environmental college and then uh, ended up uh, wanting to go to Yale because of the forestry school there. And... Um, then it was the summer after my sophomore year of college, I got a grant from the forestry school to study uh, community forestry in India and had an opportunity uh, on a research trip to go visit the 
source of the Ganges River, which is up in the Himalayas. Uh, and there were scientists studying the glacier there. Uh, and they basically said the glacier was hundreds of feet uh, further downriver the year before and the year before and the year before, and that it was retreating faster than anybody had predicted uh, because of global warming and that the source of drinking water for hundreds of millions of people was at risk. So that was the kind of moment of no turning back for me, where I ended up going back, uh, dropping out of college uh, and uh, starting a kind of youth movement around clean energy solutions. How did your parents feel about you dropping out? Uh, so it started as a semester off and then another semester <laughs> off and then another semester off. Uh, and then uh, Rolling Stone did this kind of climate heroes uh, kind of cover story. And um, I, they chose me. I was the only one under 50, I think. Uh, How old were you at the time? I was maybe 22 <laughs> at the time. Uh, and, um, and then my dad thought that was cool. You were legit so, after Rolling yeah, Stone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nice. Um, and so then tell us about, it sounds like that led you to pursuing environmental activism full time. What form did that take? So the Energy Action Coalition, again, it was sort, sort of partly a good timing thing. It was like there was an emerging consciousness around climate change. There were a, a lot of existing uh, environmental youth organizations that were kind of beginning to think about it. And what we were able to do was to create a coalition that brought all of those different organizations into a kind of meta movement organization and were able to uh, generate collective strategy to raise uh, a lot more funding with a sort of single story than any individual organizations were able to raise. Um, and so we built a, we sort of combined our forces and built a, you know, 350,000 person uh, kind of online organizing, youth training, campaigning uh, organization um, that has kind of, you know, the diaspora from which is now helping, you know, has started dozens of companies, organizations, uh, uh, you know, all around the world. And how long did you do Energy Action Coalition? And then what made you leave to, to do what you did next? So I, I coordinated the Energy Action Coalition for about four and a half years uh, and then started seeing all of the young people I'd been working with uh, kind of graduate Ooh. off a cliff, um, unable to find work in the clean energy economy. And um, didn't make sense. There was all of this work that needed doing uh, to transition us to a sustainable economy and all of these people who needed work, not only young people, but people coming back from wars overseas and um, uh, people uh, uh, losing their jobs, um, you know, in the kind of uh, in that time period. And so uh, I got really passionate about green jobs and um, uh, helped to form uh, and led a campaign to create a clean energy core nationally uh, in the kind of that led into the 08 election cycle. And we got Hillary Clinton and John Edwards and Barack Obama to endorse this idea of a clean energy core. It was kind of modeled on the civilian conservation core during the Great Depression to create five million green jobs, rebuilding this infrastructure. Um, and uh, uh, so I sort of saw that opportunity and, and uh, was also kind of burned out from the Energy Action Coalition. And I'd fallen in love 
with mm-hmm. a woman uh, in Arizona, and um, I uh, uh, empowered my campaign director to be the new executive director of Energy Action Coalition, and I moved out to Flagstaff, Arizona, and uh, started family, had two little girls, and uh, uh, took some time off uh, from carrying the weight of the world on my shoulders, which I had done too much. I think I I took personal responsibility for solving climate change uh, for the first many years of my career. And, uh, uh, and that was hard and it took a toll on me and I wasn't at all um, wise about sustainable work styles and taking care of myself. And uh, so I took a couple of years where I was working on green job stuff. Um, I wrote a book called Making Good uh, finding meaning, money, and community in a changing world, which is about combining making money and doing good. Um, I just played this kind of connecting, catalyzing, convening role for a number of years and 50-50 parented with my wife for the first couple of years of our daughter's life, which was a really wonderful time in my life. Around the same time, uh, Salon Magazine noted that you were uh, one of the sexiest men alive. Uh, <laughs> curious how, how that was. Uh, for those of you who are listening and not here in person, Billy has these piercing sort of blue-green eyes that I know you can't see if you're listening, but they're there. So if you could just talk a little bit about that. <laughs> I don't know. You just, I can't not mention it in this interview. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Oh, it feels like a long time ago. <laughs> I think last time I brought it up, you said it made you feel better about your receding hairline. Oh, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. We can leave it at that. If <laughs> Okay, moving on. So back to business. Flagstaff, Arizona. So you meet with Halo. You have your daughters. Um, at that point, where does the idea for Mosaic first come from? So uh, uh, Dan Rosen, my co-founder, and I uh, were both lived in Flagstaff. He had moved out. Uh, he never even went to college uh, because he met my wife and some of the other Navajo and Hopi organizers who were working to shut down the coal-fired power plants on their land and transition to clean energy. And he was so compelled by uh, that story and that, that work that uh, he skipped college, went out there and started working with them. Uh, so, um, I got to know him when I kind of married into that community and moved out there. And, uh, the 1.0, version of Mosaic was to partner with tribes to help them develop and own their own renewable energy resources. And we worked with some tribes in the plains on wind energy. We worked with some tribes in the Southwest on solar energy uh, and that was like one of 10 different things that I was working on at that time. Uh, and then we got accepted into the Unreasonable Institute, which is a social impact accelerator uh, in Boulder. And we're in their first class and met with some mentors there who uh, uh, challenged us to kind of expand the concept. Uh, and we, were, we like got it right away and, and we're like, uh, you know, the opportunity to develop and own renewable energy uh, should be something that every person, every community uh, has um, access to. And so uh 2.0 version <coughs> of Mosaic was a crowdfunding platform to enable anybody to participate in financing clean energy. And that was both something that involved 
online organizing, campaigning, engaging, uh, which was something I knew about, as well as uh, meeting what we saw as the primary need in the market, which was financing. And we started by financing community-scale solar projects because that was where the financing need was most uh, 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 stark um, and remains to this day an area that is, you know, very underfunded, underbanked. Um, <clears throat> so we uh, paired up individual crowdfunding with commercial solar projects and... Uh, that didn't work for uh, <laughs> some time. We tried to partner with some churches and some community centers and just had a hard time getting traction with this crowdfunding model. I mean, it was me and Dan, um, you know, not, not a lot of experience uh, financing solar projects. Where did some of the initial capital come from? The, the seed that uh, really kind of catalyzed us was... Uh, Dan and I uh, uh, were kind of, you know, down on our luck, uh, trying to figure out what what to do next. Uh, uh, worked out, then had a nice sauna at the Berkeley YMCA, and uh, we got out. And I got a call from Van Jones saying, "I just got off the phone with Prince." I was like, "Prince? Uh, which, which Prince?" And he was, and he was like. The Prince, the musician, uh, and he wants to put a quarter million dollars into green something in Oakland. And I thought maybe we'd do it together. And I said, yes, that sounds like a great idea. Uh, And um, Van helped start two organizations, Ella Baker Center, which is where I met Emily, uh, and Green for All. Uh, so we partnered with those two organizations and Mosaic and funded, uh, matched 250000 of grant money from Prince, which he gave anonymously, uh, with zero interest investments uh, from the crowd, sort of Kiva style, uh, and funded commercial solar projects at the People's Grocery, uh, St. Vincent de Paul, uh, um, uh, Asian Resource Center, uh, the Youth Employment Partnership here in Oakland. Uh, and then at what point did that not work and why? Uh, so uh, Congress passed something called the Jobs Act, which was supposed to unlock uh, uh, crowdfunding. Uh, but it was never and still to this day hasn't been fully implemented. So uh you know there really aren't national scalable regulatory pathways for crowdfunding and you know we used different state or sort of limiting uh uh investment rules to raise the capital but um uh realized that it was going to take some time before those uh, pathways emerged and um, uh, made a hard pivot in the business model about four and a half years ago to take what we had uh, learned about how to uh, work with solar contractors, fund solar projects. We had built a platform that could service thousands of borrowers and investors and apply that to the residential solar market and 
uh, see if we could um, use technology to make the process easier. And in those first four years, where where did that capital come from? Were you paying yourselves? How did you get connected to your first investors? So first investor was my mom. Go mom. Uh, <laughs> uh, put five grand into the business. Um, uh, and then my uncle. Uh, the Saudi Aramco uncle? Yeah, Saudi Aramco uncle. Uh, and um, then Dan's mom and dad came in. Uh, and then... Um, uh, and then uh, uh, a guy named Sunil Paul, uh, who coined the term clean web, uh, which is sort of software applications for uh, advancing clean energy, um, uh, wrote us a $50,000 check. And, uh, you know, that gave us a little, a little runway to build some things with. And then uh, it was uh, basically... Uh, never-ending fundraising for the next six and a half years. Um, Lots of uh, angels, um, uh, very little success with uh, VCs. Talked to probably two or 300. Ultimately found a few after six and a half years (laughs) of running the business, six years running the business, and then... um, uh, we uh, actually the the Warburg Pincus folks reached out to us. They found us and saw tech enabled lending in the same way that we did, uh, and built a relationship with them. And they ultimately uh, have invested nearly two hundred million dollars into the business and transformed what we were able to do. You know, I think helped instill a East Coast uh, discipline. To the company. I'm from New York City, uh, but uh, had probably become a little too much of a West Coast uh, uh, type leader. And, uh, you know, the, the conversations we have are around liquidity and credit and operations and uh, to scale in the business that we're in. Like those are, um, in addition to the user experience, which had been a core strength um, are kind of the fundamentals that you need to do well. And before Warburg came in, going back to the early days, did you were you able to pay yourselves at the time? Like, was it, yeah, what was that like with you and Dan and some of the early founders and team members? No, I mean, for the first year, at least, we didn't pay ourselves anything. Uh, I was supported in the first year by uh, an Ashoka Fellowship, which is a social entrepreneurship fellowship, and some consulting I was doing on other stuff. And um, uh, we basically paid ourselves the bare minimum we needed to pay bills, Um uh, for many, many years, uh, five, five or six years. Um, when you did start to get this traction, so you made this pivot from crowdfunding to entering the resi solar space, residential lending. One, like, how did you know to go there? Did you see that there was a gap in the market that you could fill? Because you could have done, you could have pivoted from crowdfunding for small commercial projects to anything. Why resi commercial lending? And then how did you get your first customers? In addition to the regulatory challenges of crowdfunding, the other struggle in uh, version 2.0 of the business was uh, getting technology leverage 
funding commercial solar projects. So we spent a lot of time trying to create a FICO score equivalent for commercial solar projects and worked with Standard and Poor's and Rocky Mountain Institute and a bunch of other organizations to come up with a standardized risk scoring framework and um, ultimately realized that that was going to take years and years to get investor adoption for something like that. But we had built a technology company uh, that was very good at user experience, uh, had built a platform that could support thousands of borrowers and investors. And we saw that as a core uh, differentiator for us. And as we looked across solar, uh, actually, you know, it was part of, uh, I remember a a turning point conversation for us was with an investor. Uh, You get lots of no's and occasionally you'll get a nugget of wisdom. Uh, And Uh, You know, they basically drew a four quadrant box for us and said, you are crowdfunding commercial solar projects. Uh, And the easier version of both of those is to institutionally finance residential solar loans. Uh, So uh, picking the two harder uh, uh, parts of the quadrant doesn't actually make it easier. You compound the complexity and difficulty of the challenge. And we'd already been thinking about both institutional capital and resi solar, uh, but it was a that was a moment of like, ah, yes, uh, we're making this. We're too clever by half. Mm-hmm. And then when you made that choice, who were your first customers and how did you get them? So we uh, were very lucky to uh, meet a guy named Ben Tarbell, uh, who um, uh, was our product leader as we were developing our home solar um, lending program. And, you know, he and I and some others from the team spent just, uh, you know, months talking to all of the top 50 uh, home solar contractors in the country, understanding their needs, understanding, you know, what, if anything, they were doing in loans, what worked about the lease product. And, uh, uh, you know, a lot of them were interested in the idea, but, um, no solar lending up until that point had been particularly successful in the market. Um, it was a very clunky process. Um, and uh, ultimately, we got uh, RGS Energy, formerly Real Goods, to be our first customer, uh, try us out. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, uh, it didn't go well. Uh, <laughs> why? Oh, the product was wrong. We hadn't fully built the technology. Um, uh, but, you know, we learned very quickly and, um, you know, had weekly releases where we were improving the platform. You know, we were able to, to sort of shorten that, uh, learning cycle and, um, uh, then it just started to build. And again, this is one of those, you know, partly good strategy, partly good execution, uh, maybe mainly good timing. Uh, the whole market was beginning to um, uh, want a, a new financing option. Um, uh, I think the capital markets were beginning to get more comfortable with the idea of a long-term loan product. Uh, and so we were able to, you know, we were the first to roll out a uh, 20-year solar loan product. We were the first to create a uh, online um, uh, instant credit decisioning, uh, a point-of-sale application process. Um, uh, 
and, uh, you know, ended up partnering with almost every major installer in the country over the next couple year period and kind of helped uh, bring solar lending into the mainstream of the market. Throughout all this, how did you know how to do all of this? Gosh, I didn't know how to do any of these things. Um, uh, you know, what I knew how to do was uh, lead teams, uh, recruit talented people, uh, listen, uh, build partnerships, uh, raise money, get people to believe in what we were building and want to be a part of it. How much of it was you feeling like, I have to learn these things that I don't know and how much of it was I'm going to hire people who know this because I either don't want to or can't learn all of it. Yeah. So I've had a a pretty disciplined learning process throughout. Um, uh, Something that I do with my family. My my two girls are 10 and 8. And they and my wife and I all do this thing we call 52 weeks of learning, which is where we sort of talk about what we want to learn. We check in. Uh, about that. And, you know, it's fun with the girls. They'll have a, you know, I want to learn how to ride a bike. And like in a week, they can like have that kind of breakthrough. My things are more like, how do you uh, hold a great board meeting? Or um, what does it mean when the yield curve is flattening? Uh, So I'll pick these things that I want to learn about. And, um, uh, you know, they typically relate to the kind of biggest needs in the business. And so just having that uh, discipline process. Now, most of the time it wasn't, you know, super technical, um, but it was the stuff that I felt like I needed to know. Uh, you know, often it would be an investor would ask me a question I didn't know the answer to um, or I didn't give a good answer to. So, like, I got to understand that better. Um, Throughout this process, what were your darkest moments? You know, we had the... Uh, the constant fear of running out of money that many startups run into typically somewhere between three and nine months of runway uh, was fairly typical throughout the first six and a half years of the business. You know, the, the hardest thing for us was one of our software, software engineers uh, died in the ghost ship fire and, you know, needing to make a call to, his family and, you know, support the team, uh, in processing that has been probably the hardest was probably the the single hardest experience. Did it change anything for you or Mosaic? You know, there was something like a a loss of innocence. Um, it was a, it was a growing up moment. It was a, it was in some ways sort of the, the, the hardest thing that impacted everybody and, um, uh, you know, realized that, um, was often not going to be uh, as easy as it felt for, you know, a short period of time. Um, that clearly would be the hardest thing. Um, you mentioned uh, some of the other business-related challenges. Um, as far as, in addition to runway and concerns on that, um, did you have the experience uh, working with the venture community where you thought you had a deal done and it wasn't actually done. We had multiple deals that I thought were done that turned out to not be done uh, over the course of the years. Um, some of which, you know, put us in a really dangerous financial position. So. What did you do when, when people who said they were in and then 
actually weren't, how did you handle that financially? Yeah. You know, we, we had difficult experiences around actually both our Series B and our Series C rounds. Um, and in both cases, uh, in the Series B round, we uh, connected with Tom Dinwiddie, uh, who many in this room and listening will know, is the founder of PowerLight, um, uh, took a chance on us, invested just as we were pivoting from commercial to residential and gave us some runway to execute on that pivot. Uh, and then in the Series C, we raised some bridge financing from some of our existing investors as well as um, obvious ventures and core innovation capital uh, that enabled us to find the right partner to scale the business with, uh, which was Warburg. Uh, what lessons took the longest to learn? You know, again, coming from a social movement background, the orientation I had then was that everybody has a role. Um, I was dealing with a lot of volunteers. Nobody was paid particularly well. Um, and I was trying to get everybody engaged and going from that to a, uh, ruthlessly high standard for talent, um, was really hard. You know, I, for many years I would feel, gosh, there's, this person really believes in what we're doing and, um, they, there's gotta be some way to, you know, uh, there's gotta be some good role for them here. And, um, you know, kind of making peace with, uh, the idea that we are a team, uh, and, you know, a players attract a players and B players attract C players. And if you don't, uh, have very high standards for the people that you're working with, it's hard to do anything else effectively. Um, Speaking of teams, coming out of this environmental activism space, um, I know from having known you as long as I have, your focus on racial justice, gender justice, how does that play into Mosaic? Um, What has that been like, given who you are, given the founding team and the leadership team at Mosaic? Yeah. So Dan Rosen and I were the original co-founders. And then, uh, we added two other co-founders over the next year or so. Uh, Arthur Colston, who was an old friend of mine from energy action coalition days and was our kind of technical co-founder. And then Steve Richmond, who joined as CFO as kind of a finance co-founder. Uh, we were all white guys. Uh, we were in the intersection of three very white and male industries in technology, uh, solar and finance. And, um, uh, I had come from a, uh, a background of really valuing diversity, um, as well as reading enough research around the business benefits of diversity to have early on a desire to do differently than most companies in the space, uh, create a more, uh, diverse, inclusive, um, company. And it's been a big focus over, you know, since, since early on. And we were not particularly successful, uh, uh, in the early days. Um, but we are now, uh, close to 50% women and 50% people of color in the company, uh, uh, which I'm really proud of. 
Absolutely. And I know you guys have some unique uh, hiring incentives. If you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So we've got uh, uh, typically a a $3,000 referral bonus for a white guy and uh, double that uh, if it's a woman, person of color or a veteran. Uh, and for some more senior positions, we'll do sort of five or and ten thousand. Uh, and so, a lot of the people on the team have come come from that. And actually, a lot of other companies and organizations have adopted that. It is one of many different uh, tactics that we've employed, uh, but it's certainly one that that has worked. Yeah. And that you're putting your money where your mouth is. Um, you're also putting your mouth where your mouth is. Which by that I mean, you reached out to me recently and said. I was invited to speak on a panel, but I agreed recently that I will not speak on a panel if there is not a woman or person of color. Um, and it's that kind of self, you you have the ability to make that decision for yourself, but that has a major impact in the industry when people like you set the standard for what's expected. So I just want to acknowledge and applaud you for that and encourage listeners um, to do the same. It was not universally popular. I'm sure. I'm sure. And all the more reason why I appreciate you for doing it. And I know that that is what it takes. Uh, we're going to move into our, our high voltage round. So quick questions, quick, quick answers. We're going to start with, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? A firefly to light up the earth. <laughs> oh. did, did you I just, just say that? Did you just, did you just, did you just come up with that on the spot? That was, that was beautiful. <laughs> uh, what inspires you? Uh, 100% clean energy for all. That is my passion. That is my purpose. When have you failed? Oh, God, too many times. Um, uh, gosh, my book didn't do as well as I wish it had. <laughs> I, I, bought, I bought the book. I know you did. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> if you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? Mosaic for emerging markets. Sometimes the best answer is no. What is something important that you have said no to that was the right decision? Killing crowdfunding. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? My mom. Mom. (laughs) Uh, Is who you are different than what you do? No. I thought you'd say that. (laughs) Uh, Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because? They hire the wrong people or run out of money. Success is? Integrating profitability and purpose. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have... There's a lot of head shaking yeah. and like shoulder shaking right now for the people listening. Uh, I would have made uh, different hiring decisions. I'm most proud of? The impact we're having solving climate change. And last question, to build a successful startup, what it takes is? Rapid learning cycles. With that, please give a big round of applause to Billy Parrish. You can listen to all our What It Takes interviews since 2017 right here. And join us for news stories of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. We're launching new episodes monthly throughout 2021. Subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with Postscript Audio. Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, invests in founding teams, building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.fund. 
Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes.